Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I'm Sue Dodds and you're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio 855 on your AM dial. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews, and we have a guest who's coming to the studio and is very bravely going to do a live show today. Um, welcome, Zoe. Thanks very much for having me. And we're going to be speaking about mindfulness. So, first of all, would you have a definition of mindfulness? I think there's really two levels of definition of mindfulness, and one is a kind of an ordinary level, which is a a kind of active, relaxed attention to your own experience. And uh, I guess a higher level of mindfulness, which includes a kind of spiritual component of wisdom, compassion, love, and attention to the connectedness of, of everything and everyone. So um, that's the best I can do, not being a mindfulness expert. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it that inspired you to study mindfulness? I think most therapists don't get away with uh, not having some tools to help clients ground themselves, particularly with emotional overwhelm and anxiety. And mindfulness practice has pretty much the best evidence behind it. Um, So most of us will have done some training at one point or another if if we're on the ball, really. Right, so... How has mindfulness changed? Is it really just a big business now? I think like the wellness industry in general, which kind of incorporates what we call alternative or other medicines, yoga practices, all kinds of meditation, um, a lot of those both Eastern and Western practices have been co-opted really by a lot of large corporations into employee wellness programs that are really um, designed to increase productivity, really, rather than compassion or connectedness. Right, so they, they, they sort of pretend that they care about the individual or their employee, don't they? But mm-hmm. it's really a, an ulterior motive, isn't it, when they sort of, you know, have... Um, meditation at lunch hour at work or do do you find that that's sort of increasing having having things like yoga classes with um, workmates or meditation Mm. or even I think one place I worked at a few years back they had people coming in to give relaxation 
massages and mm. I thought look if you're going to have a massage you, you want a really heavy duty sort of massage <laughs> don't you you know I, I sort of go off to a Myra therapist mm. you know I mm. mean why lay down and you know have have half the <laughs> have half the therapy really so yeah so do, do you notice that that's sort of increasing well it's definitely increasing and I guess if I'm going to have a massage I don't want to have it at work um But I think the main thing there is not so much that people don't have uh, any integrity in terms of why they're bringing this into the workplace, but that workplaces uh, in many cases are um, stressful and sometimes toxic places to be, and that the changes that need to be made there are um, radical and pervasive, and a a lunchtime massage is not going to do that. You know, it's an individual solution to a, a much bigger problem. Yeah, now I've, I've heard that um, it's been stated that mindfulness can lead to a significant, significant health benefits. Uh, is that the case or was it ever the case? I think the research about mindfulness is really solid. Um, There's really no doubt, I think, uh, about its effectiveness for stress reduction and across a wide variety of illnesses, including things like, you know, really difficult illnesses to to treat like psoriasis. Um, So there's no doubt that, um, that it's effective. I guess the question is really, like with anything, why are we using it and why are we using it now and why are we using it in the way we're using it? Right, so yeah, well, why are we using it now? And <laughs> I'll just all those questions. My own questions. Yeah, you've, you've just asked yourself a lot of questions. So we, yeah, I'd love to hear the answers. <laughs> well, I think uh, you know, obviously, it's been around for thousands of years. So one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is: is why now? Why have these things become popular now? And I think the the really interesting thing in terms of the use of these. Um, philosophies at this point in time is that they've been interpreted in a really individualistic way. They're very, very effective ways for people to manage themselves, to manage their stress, to manage their emotions, to manage their physiological processes. And um, it's been one of the things that we've done with something like the popularity of the Dalai Lama. I think we see over and over again that really complex um, philosophies get diluted into kind of a um, pop practices. And it's not that I'm critical of, of people using mindfulness in any way. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's definitely effective. But when it's stuck into the workplace in that way, I think you have to understand it as part of a, an individualization of distress you know, when um, unions are a lot less strong than they used to be, when, uh, you know, young people in the workplace don't have um, a historical understanding of um, collective bargaining processes, and when, you know, any wellness section in the newspaper is full of individual ways for you to um, make your life better in the face of um, some pretty pervasive social um disparities of everything from income, health, and and access to services. Now, how is mindfulness gendered? 
I think that the difficulty with the gendering of mindfulness practices is that is in the question of the assessment of what kind of action is necessary. And because mindfulness is a still, quiet practice, and women are very much still expected to be still and quiet, um, there's a real concern around the encouragement of mindfulness practices being particularly, um, um, what would I say, silencing, really, of women, much more of men. So if you look at... Um, women's social position, for instance, uh, you're looking at, yes, mindfulness can be really helpful in dealing with your stress levels when you're overworked and underpaid, um, but it's not going to help solve those problems in the longer term. So it's part of, it gets part of, it's, you know, gets put into the basket of keeping women quiet and compliant. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's um, pretty much a a Buddhist sort of philosophy to be very passive and very quiet, isn't it? I think we see that uh, in our interpretation in the West, but I, I don't think that's true. Um, I think if you look uh, on Buddhist websites, for instance, they're really critical about corporate use of mindfulness because they they basically say, look, this doesn't conform to principles of compassion, and the principles of compassion, you know, include kindness to the earth and <laughs> and kindness to all people. So, for instance, you know, they wouldn't be supporting the practice of mindfulness for Peter Dutton, for instance, in order to justify what's happening in Nauru. Mm. No, no, you certainly couldn't. Mm. So, how does mindfulness induce compliance? I think, again, the, and I say Western, that's probably too broad a generalization, but maybe in the, in the corporate use of mindfulness, um, the expectation is that your distress, instead of being normal, is problematic. So um, the idea that uh, useful stress, which might uh, lead you to organize with your colleagues or protest or do something more active, um, gets pathologized and there's an encouragement to be still, calm down and to breathe when really you need to get moving, get loud and yell. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, so I suppose people should be should be getting getting angry and as you said getting getting loud when they're expected to work really unreasonable long stressful hours at work. Mm. Really shouldn't shouldn't they rather than Yeah, so that you might um have a meditative practice that helps you survive that in the short term. But if it isn't connected to an understanding that these conditions are untenable and inhumane and unacceptable, then there's no energy left for uh, fighting the circumstance really. So what is the difference between mindfulness and Buddhist meditation practice? Well, that's a good question. I don't know the <laughs> answer to. Um, I'm because I'm not, you know, I'm not a specialist and I'm sure you'll have people tweeting or ringing in or whatever it is that people do saying that Zoe Krupke is completely off the beam. Um, 
But on a basic level, I suppose um, Buddhist practice has a spiritual component. It has a um, an understanding of right and wrong ways to be in the world so that when people practice mindfulness in that tradition, it's not um, a, a generalist practice that can help you with stress, for instance, if you're in the military, you know, because killing is unacceptable. So rather than just being a meditation practice about stillness and stress reduction, it's a meditation practice about um changing and healing the world so i hope that's that's acceptable to the <laughs> buddhists out there that's my understanding anyway yeah yeah now it's a good point you made the the difference between i think because originally meditation and mindfulness has actually come from the buddhist philosophy and how we've sort of got that into the west and we've sort of changed it around and we've changed it just to suit ourselves, really, haven't we? Well, I think that happens when anything from another culture comes in. You know, we, we translate it quite, liter- quite literally. We translate um, the actual words into our own language and use it in our own way. But I think in this, in the case of corporate mindfulness, it's really um, quite a pernicious tool um, and I think we should be very concerned about um, corporate energy being put into wellness programs and what it is they're actually trying to achieve. Mm. Yeah, that's right. So how has the purpose of the practice been restructured to include a hierarchy of outcomes as well? I think if you look at, um, you know, how, for instance, captains of industry talk about um, their experience of mindfulness, they talk about it very much in terms of, um, I can credit this practice with my success, with my focus, with my, you know, my ability to rule the world, really. (laughs) And then if you take it the next level down, um, you know, middle management, I guess. Um, People talk about uh, regulating themselves in terms of being able to deal with the the practical problems in the workplace and keep themselves together. But they're still talking about success. And then if you look at the lowest social rung, for instance, um, pregnant women, um, you look at mindful practice being marketed as a way to be better carers of other people so of children of animals of of men um and so it's a very um layered and hierarchical structure of what mindfulness is meant to be used for depending on where you are on the rung in the social ladder yeah so well particularly with women who now are expected to work full-time in the Mm. house caring for children and then go out and actually work full-time in the workplace as well. So I um, saw something that somebody had written the other day and I thought it was quite amusing and it was saying all about this single dad and Mm. how how he coped and he said, uh, you know, I, I 
do all of these things and I look after the children and I and I work but um fortunately uh you know two two nights a week my partner babysits as well and uh she cooks dinner a couple of nights a week and this is just wonderful because it just gives me such a break from you know being a single dad mm. and when it when the roles are reversed it, it you know you were sort of reading it and of course you were thinking you know sort of having having this image of, of of a woman sort of having to struggle by herself but once the roles are reversed mm. you know it, it actually you know it does come out quite funny doesn't it mm. when you sort of read it and you think well you know isn't he fortunate you know to have that assistance being a single dad you yes know? or his ex-partner I should say not his current partner but his ex-partner yeah so it helps out yes you can see a lot in the reversal which is why I think man who has it all on Twitter has quite a number of followers because he spends his time doing that highlighting <laughs> highlighting gender inequity by role reversal but I think for um for women with children, for instance, you know, the most overworked group of people on the planet, um, you know, I, I look at that day and I think for a lot of women with children, we would wonder where we would fit meditation in. Um, so it's it's not that it's not helpful. It's, it's really um, the idea that your problem is going to be solved individually with some mindful practice when, of course, you know, the, the position of women with children, as you say, leaves a great deal to be desired. Yes, it, it does. And it's something I, I didn't realise. I remember when I was a, at a play group when my daughter was quite young and I, I heard a couple of the, the women there speaking and one said, oh, you know, I, I used to wait until, you know, I put young Hannah down to sleep and then I'd run around and do all the housework. And she said, but now I actually do it while she's awake and she's really interested in watching me do everything. Mm. And then when she goes down for a sleep, I go down for a sleep as well. Mm. And I, I felt just too embarrassed to actually say, oh, that's a great idea. I hadn't thought of that mm. because I was doing the same thing. <laughs> you know, I don't know why I sort of had to wait until she was asleep and then run around and start madly doing the housework. Well, I mean, that's a really good example of... Um, you know, how you could be and would have been really stressed in that situation, as we all were, I think, or are currently, and that, you know, a meditation practice might have helped bring those stress levels down, but nothing as effective as talking to another woman about what she does mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. you know, getting some actual hands-on support. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And I, I think, well, now that people are just too busy, too busy to sort of have to go to groups and to mm -hmm. to speak to other other people in mm -hmm. the same situation and have that social contact as well. Yeah. And I and I think even you know doing going into a yoga class or going into a meditation class, you you might be sitting there with even 50 other people, but you're not interacting, are you? No. You're not. And you're not helping people, you're not raising each other's consciousness, you're not, you know, forming collectives, you're not doing those things. So that's, again, nothing against yoga and meditation. But, you know, in the situation you're describing, um, being a parent alone with small children, that's not your first priority. 
And um, you're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 855 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to Zoe Krupa about mindfulness. Home, where my thoughts escaping home, where my music's playing home. Come along to a fundraising trivia night organised by the North Carlton Railway Neighbourhood House. Support your public housing neighbours and learn more about the struggle to maintain public housing in public hands. It's all happening on Saturday, October 31, from 7 to 11pm at St Michael's Church Hall, 14 McElwraith Street, Prince's Hill. Bring your own food and drink and join the fun. Tickets are only $25 with discounts available for a table of eight. All proceeds go towards young people and families living in public housing in our community. For more information, call 9380-6654. This event is organised with the help of Friends of Public Housing Victoria, proud 3CR supporters. My favourite programme is Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio 855 on AM Band. Doctor of Philosophy, Theresa Handel. And if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, and I'm speaking to Zoe Krupa about mindfulness. Do you think that mindfulness could be perhaps described as a form of mind control so that multinational companies can create more docile workers? Well, that would have been a more catchy title for my last article, I think, than the one it had. <laughs> I think in a nutshell, yes. You know, I think you, you um, when you're looking at major corporations, you're looking at people whose main concern, obviously, is the bottom line, not necessarily the well-being of their workers, of course. And so you have to wonder about um, why particular services are brought in at particular times. And, um, you know, having worked in employee assistant programs in the past, you know, I understand those programs as being about improving the corporate bottom line. So when you're working in a, an employee assistance um, model, which is part of the wellness model, really your overarching job is to make sure that, your clients can continue to do their job properly. And as far as I'm concerned, that's um, absolutely untenable in terms of trying to put together the ethics of, you know, treating your clients well and what the workplace demands. And when you look at um, the work hours many of us have, if not most of us, uh, the idea that mindful practice can do anything but... uh, take the edge off temporarily is uh, it's ridiculous yeah well even with uh, the hours that people work at their actual workplace because um, I, I know somebody who's very very stressed at work wakes up you know early hours of the morning mm. because of the workload they've been given so they've actually taken work home mm-hmm. and sit there in the evening and might watch a little bit of TV and then continue on the working day at home as well. Mm. And that's actually, they said that that wasn't acceptable 
they ha- happened to mention it to somebody at work mm. and they said, oh, well, that's not fair on the other employees mm. if you're taking work home and sort of catching up on your work. Mm. So w- when you're actually, they expect you to come in and to be able to do this, take on this incredible mm. workload in a very stressful environment, you know, uh, dealing dealing with people who are basically going to be going into palliative care. So you can imagine all the emotional stuff mm. around that as well. But um, so do you think this sort of follows on from from work when people, you know, come home? Is there any way they can sort of disconnect with the workplace? Well, I think that's probably a whole other program with somebody who's dealing with you know the invasiveness of technology and and particularly social media but you know I think um, my interest is really in how this has become culturally appropriated and and culturally acceptable you know I think it it hasn't been that long in this country anyway in, in in my home country of Canada it's unfortunately been acceptable for a long time but here it's fairly new that um, you know taking enormous amounts of working work home and working all the time is an acceptable way of life you know one of my favorite stories of life on another planet is my um, cousin was working in France and was on holiday there and sent some emails while she was on a break and she had quite a senior position and she was pulled into uh, her manager's office when she came back and asked if maybe she was just trying to show up her colleagues or did she maybe not have a life or was this because she was English that she thought she should be working on holiday? (laughs) You know, which is kind of a normal understanding of what a holiday is supposed to be. But we're so far from a normal understanding, I think, about what's home time, what's holiday time, what's break time that we imagine that um, doing some morning and evening meditation is going to make up for, you know, two or three hours of um, of working at home. And, of course, it doesn't and has a huge impact on, on all of us, our relationships, our relationships with family, friends, children, you know. Yeah, and I think a, a lot of people sort of have such a stressful job that um, I was... I was um, reading the other day that when you actually get stressed, you know, it might might be about something small. You know, you, you're just about to reverse into a parking spot and somebody mm-hmm. zips in there before you and you've been looking for this parking spot for half, half an hour mm-hmm. and you think, oh, no, and you get so stressed about it. Mm. And um, people were asked, how long do you think it takes you to recover from, say, you know, even three minutes of being very stressed. And people sort of responded and they said, oh, you know, five, ten minutes. And and they said, no, it actually literally takes hours. Mm-hmm. It could even take days for your body to actually come down and recover from that small level of stress. So people who are Monday to Friday at work, bringing their work home with them, Mm. I mean, even if they went on a a four-week holiday, their bodies probably wouldn't have even recovered by the time they're coming back to work. So that stress would be fairly constant, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really good idea. It's a really good example of the idea of a place where mindfulness can be really useful, can really, in that parking spot moment... (laughs) (laughs) 
bring your stress hormone levels down, calm your breathing, uh, all of that really helpful, really effective. The problem is, of course, that if you're regularly stressed in that way, there's probably another driver for it. And for a lot of us, the other driver is overwork and lack of personal time and personal space. You know, we know this. We know this from animals. We know this for, from unfortunate experiments with rats and personal space, that there's only so much we can tolerate uh, and stay calm. Yeah, it's very interesting. You've brought up the point about rats. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Rat City. <laughs> I haven't heard of Rat you City. You haven't heard of Rat City. Look, I, I was reading about this. I, I think I had heard heard about it many, many years ago, but... It was basically, in a nutshell, they had a quarter of an acre and they had it fully fenced off and they basically built a rat's paradise. And they built high-rise housing with little nesting boxes Mm. and they they, they put a few rats in there. But what they did was... They made sure that the the rats had plenty of food and plenty of water Hmm. and so they wouldn't ever be stressed about finding food or water. But as the population grew and all the nesting boxes in these high-rise nesting boxes, which you you draw a parallel to the (laughs) high-rise apartments with that, Mm -hmm. what happened was you had gangs of like male rats that were roaming around attacking attacking the other rats and then when it actually got up to quite a high level population uh, they they stopped um all the female rats stopped being reasonable parents and Mm -hmm. the the offspring started to die Mm -hmm. and it wasn't actually all that long it sort of peaked and then the population fell and um, I will get some statistics and, and read it out, actually, because it is very, very interesting. But um, then the last rat died, and that was it. But they did notice that in their very stressful living conditions that what the rats tended to do was to go out to eat and to constantly groom themselves. And oh. when when you look at people in apartments... <laughs> I mean, There's a lot of constant grooming going on at the moment. And eating out. <laughs> There's a lot of eating places around here and people who go out and eat, they yep. always look well-groomed. Yeah, well, that's part of our theory about the um, current obsession with cooking shows as well. I'll have to have a look at Rat City. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you very much for coming into the studio today. Thanks for having me. And I've been speaking to... Zoe Krupa about mindfulness and I hope you've enjoyed the show and you've been given plenty of food for thought. Are you interested in ideas? Are you interested in life? That's philosophy. So listen to Radical Philosophy on 3CR. It's great. And I'm Meredith Doig, President of the Rationalist Society of Australia. <laughs>